Hello and welcome to Dr. Hogg's Pod. This week's theme is obesity, a condition that affects one in four adult men and women. Being overweight is associated with an increased risk of many chronic health problems, including diabetes, heart disease, and obstructive sleep apnea. And people with a body mass index of over 40 can expect to see an overall reduction in their life expectancy of eight to 10 years. Joining us here today to discuss this is Lucy Perrow of the British Dietetics Association. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Lucy, would you mind just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work? I've worked for nearly 20 years, almost exclusively in weight management, um, six years in the US and then um, nearly 15 years in the NHS, uh, all in London. Um, I currently manage what's called a tier three weight management service. So we sit between your um, your Weight Watchers, Slimming World, sort of your commercial weight management programs or the program you might have down the gym, an eight-week. Um, That's with, tier two. Those are tier two. And yeah. tier four, which is your bariatric surgery. Um, I work with a team of myself, a di- another dietitian, physiotherapist, psychologist and uh, endocrinologist consultant. Yeah. And what would tier one be on that ladder? Tier one would be your public health campaigns, um, so your change for life, um, eat five a day, or leaflets may be given to you in your surgery or available. So um, unfortunately, tier three services are very varied across the country, and it's an absolute postcode lottery as to whether one is available in your area, which I'm very keen for um, NHS services, CCGs, to look into because I think you know, they are absolutely vital in as an alternative to people having surgery mm-hmm. um, or as part of a pathway to surgery to ensure the, the right people are getting the surgery and it's as effective for the patient and um, cost saving for the NHS that the right people are getting the surgery. Um, and I think tier three weight management services are part of the pathway and a key to, to this. In 1993, uh, 13% of men and 16% of women were classed as obese. And in 2011, 24% of men and 26% of women were were classified as obese. What's the current situation? Now we're up to nearly 29%. In wow. Well, that's 2017. We haven't wow. got the 2019 data. That's, so it's getting worse. It's getting worse, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and the same for children. Um, so we're seeing... Uh, at age five, one in ten children is classified as obese. By the mm-hmm. age of eleven, it's now one in five. Did I say sorry? One in ten for um, children of five, and one in five, so twenty percent of eleven-year-olds. So for adults and children, we're looking at an increase in obesity. Oh. And are there any particular groups or ethnicities that are overrepresented within those statistics? There are. Um, Particularly if people from the more deprived areas, the statistics show that obesity is higher in those areas. People from a black or ethnic background, um, it's not just of an ethnic minority. People, particularly it's um, Health Survey for England found it was black people tended to have the highest obesity and then followed by white Caucasian. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, and um, also it's... The Health Survey for England also found that level of education, um, the lower the level of education, the higher the obesity rates. Mm-hmm. 
and also people with disabilities tend yeah. to have a higher risk yeah. of obesity. Yeah. Interestingly, I noted that people of Chinese ethnicity are, tend not to be uh, overweight, for example. Do we know why it is that one particular culture or ethnicity are more likely to be overrepresented uh, in these statistics than others? I think, I mean, the, the obesity rate in Japan is 4% mm-hmm. compared to the US is 40%. We're at 29% in, in England um, or the UK. Um, so I think there's several factors. Um, I think the one of them that we're seeing, to, particularly in the country of their origin, so seeing in China, was, you know, they never had the Western diets that we have, fast food culture, yeah. um, and that as as that's now become into their society, we're seeing more and more people, the obesity levels increasing in those countries. Um, so it's there's something about the Western diet, which, you know, the fast food, the eating with your hands particularly, I think, you know, eating with chopsticks, which they traditionally do in those cultures, yeah. you eat far slower, you can't put as much food in your mouth. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, you know, just simple things like the way they eat their food, I think contributes to the lower levels of obesity. And the foods they, they traditionally eat, you know, Japan has a very high um, consumption of raw fish high in omega-3s quite filling high protein but they do eat a lot of rice which people go you know low carb lots of carbs is bad for you but the the rice they eat isn't fried rice or you know the the fried rice we associate with chinese food is a western chinese food not a cultural food they tend to eat in china or japan so i think there's there's several factors what about things like genetics? I've read about the OB gene in certain individuals making them more prone to uh, gaining weight than other people. Do you know anything uh, about that uh, being a causative factor? There's definitely, I think, something within... I mean, there's so much research going on because we, we don't... Obesity is relatively new. You know, you think 20, 30 years ago, it, it was it was a not as as prominent as it is now, I think overweight has almost become normal in our society. Um, So I think genetics definitely plays a role. What it is, we don't know. There's a lot of research going in to look at the hormone leptin and the the role that plays in in certain people. That's your fullness hormone. So when we, most people, when they eat and they feel full, the leptin hormone tells your brain to stop eating. Um, So they've looked at, can we just inject leptin into people does yeah. that so that's part of the of the um the genetics they're looking at um the fto gene um but if you think our genetics haven't changed that much mm-hmm. especially with the rate of obesity so we can't blame it on genetics there are people who are certainly predisposed genetically to obesity and and to quote um there's genetics loads the gun but it's our environment that pulls the trigger so we, we are, can be genetically predisposed to obesity, but it's our environment that actually causes yeah. the obesity. Um, so, I mean, it takes, as I'm sure you're aware, it takes you know, hundreds, thousands of years almost for genetics to change. And the obesity epidemic has come on far quicker than our genetics have changed. Yeah. So I think we can't change genetics. When I worked in South Africa a few years ago, in the Zulu culture, there was a sense that if you were 
taking care of your wife, then she um, she was quite a voluptuous woman, and and frequently it was considered the accepted normal for a woman to be overweight. I would say bordering on the obese. Is there a different perception within different cultures about what is and isn't acceptable in terms of uh, being overweight? Yeah, I, I totally um, see, understand where you're coming from. We do see people where um, being bigger is a sign of wealth. So especially from countries that historically have high levels of poverty, um, Africa, um, South Africa, um, some of the Caribbean islands, where being thin was actually meant you were poor and being bigger meant you were wealthy. Um, it's, it's funny, in the UK, it tends to be um, that the, the more wealthier, the thinner, um, but people, as, as I mean, I work solely in London and we see so many different cultures that this has come over to the UK, um, that different cultures, they perceive obesity or overweight as normal, a sign of wealth. Um, so we've got a whole mixing pot of culture, of environment, of um, eating habits, eating behaviours, types of food people eat all coming together um and and it's what makes this area so fascinating to me um that there's not a one size fits all for reasons of why people are overweight that you see um and quite often i do see people who this is you know my family are all big i come from whatever country and being big is normal and it's seen as a sign of wealth and so so do you have any particular approaches or or phrases that you tend to use to try and introduce the notion of you know health and healthiness and weight and weight loss um it's funny because actually we do get asked um quite frequently from um health other healthcare professionals gps nurses Mm. about raising the subject of weight because it it's such a personal subject weight food um you know it's all so personal to someone and it's a very difficult subject for people to discuss and talk about which is why you know I work with people who are trained in addressing this subject in a very sensitive manner Um, I often see people who say you know my doctor my whoever just told me oh you're overweight go see the dietitian or you're you're too big go see the dietitian very blunt Um, very blunt and that's very and it's something that they, they find very, very difficult. Um, and so what one of the things we do make sure is that we're very sensitive and, and understanding that weight is incredibly, you know, asking someone what they eat on a day-to-day basis is a very difficult thing for them to address if they know, especially with things like comfort eating or binge eating disorder, when they know what they're eating is not healthy for them to tell someone. And weight is an incredibly difficult subject for people to talk about. Um, and quite often it isn't until they've been diagnosed with a health condition such as type 2 diabetes that they they start to even think about addressing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the number of people who get referred to us versus the number of people who actually make an appointment versus the number of people who come to clinic and see through seeing the dietitian is, you know, is quite small because I think a lot of people get told to come, but they're not ready to address that. And it's quite often not till they've got a health condition. A si- and type 2 diabetes, as you said, is a silent condition. It's, and I do um, address that with people, that it's not until they start getting symptoms that they might actually start coming to, cl- mm-hmm. 
but by that point it's too late. Yeah, well, a lot of the damage may already have been done at exactly. that point. Exactly. So that brings us nicely onto my next question, really, which is about trying to understand what actually works and what actually works in the long term. Because a lot of diets, for example, seem to offer a temporary weight loss, but the maintenance of weight loss is a particularly difficult problem. What kind of strategies do you adopt at your workplace? I mean, if I, ha- if I had the answer to what works and works long term, I would be a very, very rich woman because yeah. um, the short answer is we don't know. The strategies we use, um, uh, obviously, it, it varies from person to person. I could sit and see 20 people and every strategy I use is something different with each of those 20 people. Um, it's about getting to know that patient, getting to know why they've gained the weight in the first place, what they've tried in the past, what worked in the past short term, um, what they found difficult, what are their barriers. Um, And this varies from person to person. So you have to work with that individual. And it's a a lot of it's a case of trial and error with various things. Let's try, you know, this, let's try a low fat diet. Oh, I can't stick to that. Okay, let's try low carb. I can't stick to that. Let's try smaller portions. It might be what they're drinking. It might be they're eating out too much might be just a lack of physical activity. It might be something deeply psychological that they've used food as a coping mechanism where other people use drugs, alcohol, smoking. They've used food. Mm -hmm. um, And so they need a lot of psychological support to change, you know, whether it's um, cognitive behavioral therapy or something even more intense than that. So you mentioned a little bit about CBT and psychologists. What sort of things do they tend to unearth when they're talking to their patients? Oh, there's a plethora of reasons why someone might use food as a coping mechanism. One of them is um, abuse, often sexual abuse, especially in women. Yeah. Um, they might use weight as a physical barrier. Um, so it's like a wall against their abuser. There's mm-hmm. a perception that if they are fat to not use to to use the patient words um their abuser will find them unattractive and stop the abuse there's also just using food as a coping mechanism they talk about having a feeling empty inside and using food to try and fill that hole um or people as children where food was used as sort of a reward or punishment so if they didn't behave they would go to bed without dinner and so or women, I've seen women who in relationships, abusive relationships, their partner would um, withhold food from them as a kind of abuse. Um, and so when they are free to eat as much as they want, they overeat. It, um, almost as thinking this might be withdrawn from me again, that they'll overeat. Um, so, I mean, the the psychological reasons of why someone overeats. and it And as I said, it can be so in so in depth inside them so deep inside them that they've never even addressed it or thought of this as a reason and they beat themselves up they think they just have no willpower oh I'm weak and and this then feeds into the the original abuse of you're you're helpless you're weak you're you know you you have no power and so they use food again and it keeps coming up and up in their lives throughout I mean we see people in their 50s who have never dealt with abuse in their childhood 
and they see themselves as just weak-willed and oh why can't I just eat less but because food has always been their coping strategy mm-hmm. and the more they beat themselves up they then use food because they feel bad about themselves and then they beat themselves up more and it's this vicious cycle that they've had since childhood um, and until they realize why they're in this cycle they can never address it and they can they can't lose weight because they use this this relationship this love-hate relationship they have with food will continue and continue so that's why as part of our service psychology is incredibly um, important for these people so we talked a little bit about the psychology behind it a little bit about the diets what other sorts of things have you got in your armory to try and help people to lose weight um, we have a physiotherapist within our service who really tries to help people increase their physical activity. Um, so that's just even getting people walking a little bit. Some people, it's just getting out the house. Um, as we've already touched on, obesity is an incredibly uh, a condition that's incredibly stigmatised by society. So we have people who won't, who are too embarrassed to leave the house. Um, they won't go for a walk in the park. Um, so one of the things our physiotherapist has done is start um, exercise classes within our clinic just for people within our service. So it's a safe environment, safe both in terms of they're incredibly scared of injuring themselves if yeah. they start, you know, and I think they think exercise equals going down the gym, doing an aerobics class in your yeah. lycra and your um, wrist mm-hmm. sweatbands. So um, it's safe in terms of them not injuring themselves. The physiotherapist is on hand to help them do it safely, but also safe in terms of judgment. Everyone in that room is in the same boat as them. Um, So that's one of the things we do. And just trying to get people just moving again um, in as as much as they can and are able to do. Um, And that varies, obviously, from person to person. We do see people who are incredibly fit and go to the gym and they might need to help with the diet side of things and vice versa. There's people who once they and a lot of people, once they start going, I mean, I had a patient who did the Couch to 5K uh, NHS app and found it incredibly empowering um, to be able to where they thought they would never in a million years be able to run 5K. um, And yet they found it by the time they could do it how good they felt about themselves yeah. and just that that self-confidence it's obviously is often lacking in a lot of this population um, and how just doing some kind of physical activity and achieving something you set out to do is incredibly empowering to them uh, the guy who actually did the couch to five k program an american guy uh said initially he absolutely loathed running he hated the whole idea of running but he'd recently separated from his partner and he thought you know I've got to get out I've got to get out of the house and he was hating it absolutely he couldn't stand it to start with but with time as he did more and more and more you know eventually came to actually really enjoy it and somehow managed to get his mother who he said would never run in a million years uh, out to go for a jog with him so it's extraordinary how things turn around for some people and I think just people having it's often the confidence to start doing something and that self-belief. Um, I I have several patients who love swimming, but having that confidence just to get into a swimming costume. Um, and I had one patient who said she actually got the confidence to get in the swimming costume, went to the swimming pool, and she said, this woman kept looking at her, and she was like, oh, she's looking at me because of my size. And she said, she said, Lucy, you know, I was ready to go just confront her. And 
And she said, at the end, the woman came over to her and said, oh, I'm sorry, I've been staring. I love your swimming costume. Can I ask where you got it from? And she said that just totally changed wow. how she thought about herself. Yeah, and that actually lovely. people, what I think, what I really find in this population is that they think so much worse about themselves than anybody ever mm. does. And that yeah. they're so hard on themselves yeah. and so incredibly their self-confidence is so low and then society actually does make it worse um, quite often. The weight stigma issue, um, that's a whole other topic we could talk about, but weight stigma is something huge. And as we've already touched on the discrimination, people who are overweight and obese um, have to, uh, who go, go through is, is really difficult and it actually just makes them feel far worse and less confident about exercising or changing um than than they already feel that the comments they might get in the gym um and i you know you think you'd hope most people would be like good on them they're doing something healthy and positive and changing their weight but unfortunately there are people out there who comment and make jokes and that just stops people and hinders them doing so what about medication? Where does that fit into the equation? Sometimes as a GP, I prescribe all of that. My personal experience is that people tend not to stick with it for very long and there could be various different reasons for that. What's your experience of, of medication use? Um, well, all of that's the only one that's currently available on the NHS. Um, and I, similar to you, I think people people want a drug they can take and lose weight and eat what, and what they want and not do any exercise, which unfortunately doesn't exist. Um, and as you said, all of that does prevent fat being absorbed. And as I say to people, the fa- if you eat fat, it still has to come out somewhere. So wow. the side effects of all of that, I think one of the things that make people very um, against using it or they stop very quickly. Uh, you know, I've had people go, I can't wear white if I'm taking all of that, that they find it. What I think all of that does very well is almost if people are taking it properly, um, it's almost force people to eat a lower fat diet. So high in fruits and vegetables, um, sort of carbohydrates without fat added to them. So no butter, chips, things like that. Um, and if they take it properly, they will lose weight, I yeah. think, more um, because they've been forced to change their diet more than the all of that necessarily getting rid of the fat. Unfortunately, people manipulate it. They say, oh, if I'm going out for dinner, I just don't take it. Or if I'm having this, I just don't take it. Or yeah. one lady, I take it every night before I go to bed. I'm like, well, it's not going to work then because you have to take it. So that there's people who don't take it You properly. have to take it with meals. You have to take it with meals yeah. for it to, to have an effect. There is a drug available um, that you can get on a private prescription called Saxenda. It's called liraglutide for diabetes treatment, but Saxenda for weight loss. Um, it's currently not available on the NHS prescription, mm-hmm. um, but again, that's something you have to inject every day. Yeah. So there are, there's always pros and cons mm-hmm. to every every treatment, um, and I think you know the thought of injecting yourself with a drug mm-hmm. every day for yeah. weight loss is quite yeah. quite um, daunting for people. And what would that cost privately if somebody wanted to get it? My understanding is it's about two hundred pounds a month. Mm. Wow, so a lot of money, really. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, as I said, currently not available as an NHS prescription. So moving on to tier four treatment, uh, bariatric surgery, how do you decide if a patient is suitable for that or not? Again, this is a conversation with our patients. Um, many of them come to us absolutely determined they want to have surgery and that's the only option. And um, But when they see what we can offer, um, they actually are then 
happy to try an alternative. Um, but so it's for every person who goes through to surgery, the pathway according to NHS is that they should go through a tier three service before bariatric surgery. Yeah. For a minimum of six months, most should be 12 months. So we technically should be seeing every patient who goes for bariatric surgery within our borough in London. Um, this doesn't always happen. As I said, tier three services are very entry. Yeah. Um, so it's a conversation, has our patient tried everything and it's just not worked for them for whatever reason it might be? And are they suitable for surgery? So both, have they changed their diet? People think that, you know, they don't have to change their diet for surgery. And that's one of the yeah. key things the surgeons will look for. Are they yeah. eating healthy? Have they changed their diet? Yeah. Are they still binge eating, comfort eating? If so, the, the, they won't do the surgery or they shouldn't do the surgery because it's not going to work for them. They're, they will continue. They might lose weight initially, but in the long term, it won't stay off. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure all the that they're dietetically, medically and psychologically suitable for mm -hmm. surgery. Mm -hmm. And it's a conversation we have within our MDT and then with the patient. And if they still want to go forward, then we refer them on. Our consultant sits within the hospital bariatric team and we can refer them on quite easily. Yeah. So it is a nice, it's a pathway. Yeah. Um, we're not a barrier to surgery as a tier yeah. three service. We're an alternative or yeah. a pathway. So do you have any idea of what proportion of the patients that you see you end up referring for a bariatric opinion and of those, what numbers end up actually having the surgery? I, I would say it's less than one in 20. Really, that little? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not many. Um, it's, I think, and then people might get referred and they go to a group session at the hospital to understand more about the surgery mm -hmm. and the process. Yeah. And, and they realise, actually, I mean, I think people think surgery is an easy way out, but it's yeah. actually an incredibly difficult, life-changing surgery. Yeah. You will never be able to eat normally again really yeah. um depending on which kind of surgery you have this the comp well, the side effects that if you have a gastric bypass you will be taking vitamin supplements for the rest of your life if you have a gastric band you will have only be able to eat tiny tiny portions um of solid food um if you have a sleeve gastrectomy your stomach's so small that you do find that you can only tolerate a couple of bites if you overeat yeah. vomiting. So where do you see this all going? Do you think we're just going to get bigger and bigger or are we starting to plateau? What's the long-term outlook in your view? I, I don't know what the outlook is, unfortunately. Um, I think we are getting better as a nation at, at looking at knowing healthy eating there's very few people I see who don't know that fruit and veg are good for them. There's a few who I, I know, who I see who don't know what particular fruit and vegetables are. Um, or I think cooking, cooking back in schools, mm -hmm. home economics is, I, I think it's now coming back on the curriculum. It was taken away. I think, you know, I've, I've seen teenagers who have never even cooked a piece of toast. You know, I think cooking is really key. Um, and especially cooking on a budget and healthy ingredients because people perceive unhealthy food is perceived as cheaper than healthy food. Yeah. Um, so I think teaching people how to cook healthy food on a budget. I think people like Jamie Oliver have done wonders for this. Yeah. Um, you know, they've really tried to show healthy, quick meals, 15 minute meals um, and using cheaper ingredients, some of his meals. <laughs> um, but 
I think there's just so many angles we can go from. Um, as a dietitian, obviously I see people on a one-to-one -one basis um, and I, I work with them in that way. But I think there's every person in society and government and media and marketing and supermarkets all have a, a responsibility and a role to play in reversing this tide of obesity. Lucy, you've given us a lot of food for thoughts today. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I can see you're really passionate about this subject and I really hope that the listeners back home have enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Uh, please feel free to send me any questions or comments at drhogspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.